the best way to understand it is to recognize that period poverty is simply an aspect of poverty. Um, menstrual products are necessities. And so when someone is put in a position of struggling to afford basic necessities, whether that be shelter or food or water or you know things for their livelihood, menstrual products fall into that bucket. Welcome to the She Speaks podcast, a podcast created to elevate women's voices across diverse backgrounds on topics impacting women. I'm your host, Aliza Freud, founder and CEO of She Speaks. Each week, I have a conversation with a woman expert who shares her best how-to advice on a topic so we can learn how to better do that one thing from a woman who's been there and done that. Our hope is that these conversations help you feel more inspired to speak up and be heard in your own life and work. Now, on to the episode. Welcome back to the show. Hope you're all having a great week so far. So today's topic is one that was very taboo when I was growing up. It was just not a topic that we talked about openly. And it's interesting because it's something that is very natural and happens to all young women. And by that, I'm talking about our periods. And I remember being a young woman and having lots of questions, but not really feeling like there was a place to go and to get answers. Today's generation of young women, Gen Z, are really trying to change that and make the topic of talking about our periods and um, and questions that young women have not be something that is shrouded in secrecy. Today's guest is Nadia Okamato, and I can't tell you what an impressive young woman she is. She is at the ripe old age of 25. She is a Harvard graduate. She is also the co-founder of August, which is a company that creates period products. She was also the founder of Period, and she's the author of Period Power. She, along with her 4 million followers on TikTok, are really building a community and creates content for young women so that they can understand what's going on with their bodies. One one of the things that we talk about during today's conversation is something that is incredibly important um, for young women, and that is the topic of period poverty. And that is the fact that young women, many young women across the United States do not have enough money to afford products to help them with their periods. One in five young women struggle to afford period products, and four in five have either missed or know people who have missed classes because they did not have access to period products. One of the other topics that Nadia is very open about is her own uh, mental health struggles, and she is incredibly dedicated to creating content to help young women and to destigmatize conversations about our periods and also about mental health. It's unbelievable to see what Nadia has done in such a short time and how much more she will accomplish. So with that, I am going to let you hear my conversation and we're going to jump right into it. Here we go. Nadia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I am incredibly inspired by your story and the work that you're doing. You are really just so young and doing amazing things. So I want to talk about what inspired you to start the foundation and and the company that you're now working on, but what inspired you to get involved in this mission-based world that you live in now? Um, I mean, first of all, I'm a menstruator myself, so I get a period. And I think that for me, 
that is my lived experience. You know, I think from age 12 hitting puberty and navigating the world as, you know, a young woman, I I think I've always felt internal conflict around like how I want to feel empowered versus like societal stigmas. Um, And so I think that it was always a gender equality has always been a passion of mine, like destigmatizing topics, whether it be around mental health, bodies, puberty has always been an interest of mine. But I think it really became like my career and like passion focus uh, in 2014 when I learned about period poverty, um, which is, you know, menstruators not being able to afford access to period products due to a lack of resources. And it was just a wake up call of realizing my own privilege and Also, just learning about this issue that I had never heard of before. Even today, learning more and more the further I go into this work around how deep this issue is, how the effects are um, so intersectional and intertwined so much of every other, you know, aspect of inequality. I started on the nonprofit side. I led the the nonprofit period as executive director from age 16 to 22. And that was really focused on getting period products to homeless shelters, organizations that would be supporting low-income menstruators, uh, doing legislative advocacy, student advocacy. And it was really through the combined work of, you know, working in the nonprofit sector, but also having this platform as then an influencer advocating on these issues And then publishing a book, like, you know, learning more about how the companies in the industry work and developing a really, really strong thesis in my head around how products could be better to reinvent and reimagine how menstruation is seen in the consumerist capitalist culture that we have in a way that leans into social enterprise. So, yeah, that's kind of how I ended up on the company side. It's been uh, an unexpected journey, but yeah, really fun. I want to delve a little bit further into period poverty because I think this is a topic that a lot of people are not aware of. I became aware of it because of work that we were doing with some companies that provide these types of products, uh, but I had no idea that it existed and, and, and to the extent that it exists in this country. So can you talk about what, it, what period poverty is and maybe its relation to the tampon tax? Yeah. Well, I mean, as I said, period poverty is just not being able to afford access to period products. And I think that the best way to understand it is to recognize that period poverty is simply an aspect of poverty. Um, Menstrual products are necessities. And so when someone is put in a position of struggling to afford basic necessities, whether that be shelter or food or water or, you know, things for their livelihood, menstrual products fall into that bucket. You know, I think that for so long, because of the stigma around periods, when people think of necessities, period products aren't really considered in the mainstream idea of what necessities are. But in reality, it goes hand in hand with someone's lived experience just as much as, you know, struggling to afford other basic necessities. So I think that where where the effects of period poverty need to be understood is that it's not just, oh, someone um, isn't having a great time on their period because they don't have period products. It's, oh, this person doesn't feel capable and competent to get to be able to go about their day, to participate in school, to participate in work because they are bleeding and they aren't able to hold it in or anything like that, but they're bleeding. It will affect the way that they're able to be mobile and move around. Um, Period pain is a whole other side of this issue. But I also think at the same time, it's a matter of hygiene, given the stigma around period 
periods in general, I think that it's hard to uh, for people to advocate for their own needs around it, right? And so I, the way the tampon tax, uh, you know, plays into this is the tampon tax is a sales tax on period products that exist in about 20 states in the U.S., it was 46 years ago, so we've made lots of progress, but 26 in the U.S. still have a tampon tax, which is an added sales tax on menstrual products, considering them non-essential goods. So it's not that period poverty is necessarily going to be solved by taking down the tampon tax because that tax is affecting people who are able to buy the products. But I think that the need to fight the tampon tax is that it codifies into law that menstrual products are non-essential goods. Meanwhile, products like Rogaine, Viagra are considered medical necessities and don't have that tax. So I think that there's a lot of meaning behind the fight against the tampon tax. In addition to the fact that for many people, having the, that act added, you know, 7% to 14% tax does make a difference on co cost and price consciousness as well. So I think that, um, you know, the tampon tax is one very tangible way to make progress to having a conversation about period product accessibility. I think there's other legislation that's very important as well that can, I think, more directly impact period poverty, whether that be free products in schools, shelters and prisons or just houseless services organizations. Hi, everyone. We're taking a quick break to say that if you're enjoying this episode, you can subscribe wherever you're listening. We would also love for you to join the She Speaks community. It's free to join and you'll get the chance to have first access to surveys, giveaways, sampling opportunities, and great content like this very podcast. All links are in the show notes. Now, back to the show. So let's talk about your current company. So you you, you talked about how from the ages of 16 to 22, you were involved, uh, you launched involved in Period, which is a nonprofit. Then you are now um, heading up a company called August. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah, August, it's a menstrual product uh, brand. Um, we make sustainable versions of tampons and pads. So while most pads take 500 to 800 years to decompose, August pads take 12 months. They're comfier, they're more absorbent, they're more leak proof, you know. Um, and so overall, just, you know, a no brainer in terms of being better for the environment, better for someone's body, and also just a better experience. The tampons as well, like we have a smooth, long, BPA-free plastic applicator. And I think a huge part of our mission with sustainability is that it's not just about the product. It's also about the supply chain and how we're thinking of carbon offsetting and being really thoughtful and intentional about how we think of impact and give back. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, when I was on the nonprofit side, I was interacting with millions and millions of units of products per year, working directly with a lot of companies. So I got to know a lot about products and I got to know about their pitfalls, where they, there was room for improvement. And I think I also started to feel really passionate about the power of business because in the nonprofit world, the way that I my job was set up as executive director is to fundraise for the organization and to realize that in order to do that, I was working with a lot of you know donors who work at, at businesses, businesses to do donations. And so for me, I started to become really passionate about social enterprise and impact-driven businesses as a way to really cultivate that change in, in a revenue model that is more sustainable. Mm -hmm. 
Well, let's delve a little bit deeper into how you have grown your following, which started as the organization that you founded and now obviously has also benefited the company that you're building. But you have over 4 million followers on TikTok. I know it's a big platform for you. That platform has just exploded for mainstream people, right, since COVID happened. Can you talk about how the platform has helped you grow and to get the message out about first your organization period and now the company that you founded? Yeah. So, I mean, TikTok wasn't a thing when I was on the nonprofit side. It was mostly Instagram, um, Vine, but I never got into that. But, you know, I mean, TikTok, just like any social media platform, is a tool for brand awareness. Brand awareness is directly linked to marketing, you know. And so I think that from a business perspective, it has been such a blessing to be able to grow that community. But I also think one of the beauties of being on a platform like TikTok is that it's high content, like saturation. So, There is no shortage of immediate, honest feedback on whether or not a message is resonating with consumers. So I think that TikTok has really escalated the amount of learning that we can do um, and the speed at which that we can do that learning. Uh, I think at the same time, like it is a platform to drive awareness, right? And most people don't know that most pads have enough plastic for three to five plastic bags. They don't know things like that. And so to be able to come onto a platform and talk about Period poverty is an issue, but also talk about the issues that August exists to fight has been an incredible tool as we've been able to grow this business over the last year and a half. And what has the reaction been? I mean, obviously, you the re, a part of that reaction is the proof in the pudding. You have 4 million followers. But what are, what are you hearing from young women who you engage with on the platform? You know, I think that it's a total mixed bag. You know, we have um, comments from menstruators who really appreciate how honest and blunt our content is, you know, I post period blood videos when I'm on my period. And there are people who find that really meaningful and really helpful and really informative. And uh, I think it even inspiring in, in certain instances. Then, of course, we have many people who are probably much louder, um, who find it disgusting and, um, you know, think that periods are meant to be private and uh, feel offended by the content. And I think that kind of more like pushback comments is, It's honestly the reaction that I think keeps me really motivated because I never have a day where I'm worried that what I'm doing um, isn't needed. You know, I think that with every pushback comment, I am reaffirmed in my understanding that the period stigma is rampant and problematic. I just want to highlight something that you said, because I think this is is such an important part of someone like you who is building a mission-based business. You said you never have a day where you don't think that what you're doing is needed, right? So meaning, you know that what you're doing is needed every single day that you do it. So that knowledge is knowledge that I'm sure is useful for you in moving forward, even through the tough days. And as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you have a lot of tough days. So in in thinking about you know, that idea of like the hard charging. You've talked about this before, that at the end of your sophomore year at Harvard, you took a leave of absence to help 
period grow, which was the the um, the foundation we talked about earlier, and you were able to substantially increase the number of chapters in in that program. But you have shared that this really impacted your physical health, and you were hospitalized several times during that period of time. Um, can you explain what that was like for you in terms of you know how the business was affecting your health? and how it was affecting the health of of the organization you were running. Well, I would say that like, you know, I came into my career kind of like the height of hustle and girl boss culture, where I think a lot of the messages that I grew up with, or even the entrepreneurs I was watching, a lot of the messaging was around, you know, never sleep, always working, work harder, you know, work hard, play hard, you know. Uh, And I think I kind of, uh, you know, had this learned understanding that, you know, I was only going to be successful or the proof that I was maximizing my potential was to be on the brink of burnout, right? If I wasn't exhausted, then I wasn't working hard enough. And I think that that is one, a huge component of hustle culture that I think is really being, you know, questioned now. I also think it's like an extreme element of capitalism of like very much looking at people like you, you in a utilitarian way. And I think at the same time, uh, that understanding uh, alongside, you know, being 16 when I started and running away from a lot of my own trauma and using work as an escape from that meant that I was very addicted to it. And so I think that burnout has been kind of a constant risk in my life. It's one that I think was more present when I didn't have as many coping mechanisms as I do now. And I think, you know, as a leader, something I really understand today that I think I had to learn the hard way is that like, I need to set an example for company culture, for being well rested, for advocating for my personal boundaries. And, and that kind of sets the tone for how work culture, you know, at any institution or company um, is set. And so I think that those are things that I had to learn. Um, I also think that when I was starting, that kind of hustle mindset was like work as fast as you can. And there weren't a lot of moments to pause and be like, okay, what could go wrong here? Like, let's evaluate what's doing, what's good and what's bad, what needs adjustments. Like, let's be really thoughtful and slow about this. There was no concept of like slow, thoughtful growth. It was like ion expansion, go, go, go. And you know, quick learnings from failures, but I think just like go, go, go. And I think that I I have a very, very different way of approaching my leadership today on this business, which is like having very structured time to be able to review where the company is, um, evaluating the performance of different, you know, strategies that we're figuring out and taking in constant feedback to improve um, and be really thoughtful and intentional about how we work. So in 2022, um, you mentioned earlier that you ran period from the age of 16 to 22, and um, you parted ways with period due to some controversy. Can you talk a little bit about what caused you to leave this foundation that you were so passionately forming um, and move on to start August? Well, at the time, so this was in 2020, I had already stepped down as executive director and I was still involved on like national comms management and things like that. But I think, you know, for me in 2020, I think as there was this cultural moment around accountability and race relations and racial justice and also kind of girl boss culture, right? And the toxicity of girl boss culture, I was very much pulled into, you know, a a lot of public unlearning and learning about some of the behavior that I, you know, just mentioned, which was around like not being so thoughtful or intentional about how I took up opportunities or took up space. And I think that 
you know, I grew up in very white dominated spaces where I always felt comfortable knowing I was a person of color, but I don't think had really done the work to understand what it meant to be Asian American in proximity to very intersectional and diverse activist spaces. And I didn't do the learning around what privilege does that allow me as also like an Ivy League, Harvard educated, you know, student who has, you know, started this at a really young age and was afforded certain resources that other people weren't. And so I think that a lot of learn, there were a lot of learnings that came out of, you know, kind of that controversy. I mean, I don't even really think of it as controversy. I think it it was like a lot of very valid things that were brought up, right? Valid that, you know, I had kind of taken every opportunity, never really thinking, okay, like, should I pass this off to somebody else, right? It was this go, go, go. Yes, say yes to everything. And that's something that's really changed for me now. I think it was also like, the nature of running a nonprofit where most people are volunteered and you know that would never happen at a company because it's considered unpaid labor. And I think that there are a lot of loopholes around how you think of work and the value of work and appreciation of people where, where there is a lot of gray area on the nonprofit space. And I don't say that to make excuses. I say that to, you know, say because of that, I don't think that I had the consciousness to like question a lot of the ways certain programs like that are built. And I think that, you know, the organization, along with so many other organizations um, and chapter-based organizations, are really rethinking that now, right? Because I think we've had this cultural conversation around, like, what is volunteerism and how do you do it thoughtfully? And understanding that volunteerism automatically makes it so that people who are wealthier and can afford to work for free or give their labor and time for free are more able to participate in things like that. Yeah. And, and you know what, I think the other part of it that's the complicating factor, I'm sure during that period of time, is that you're also very much the face of the organization. And there is something that is associated with that because typically when you're the face of the organization, that's who people seek out to have be involved in whatever those opportunities are. And it's just a matter of, okay, how do you, you know, I guess smartly be able to to siphon those off to other to other people. And you know, it's uh, it's amazing how much how young you are and what you've been able to accomplish and learn in such a short period of time. Uh, you know, I think a lot of these things, you know, t- sometimes somebody needs to go through something five times uh, to understand how to deal with it. And some other people, and I think you probably fall into this category, go through it once and you go, oh, okay, this is the learning and this is how I apply it. So that's all, that is just a credit to you. I want to just end with, if you could talk a little bit about how do you compare yourself now versus where you were when you were working on period. I would say I'm a lot more well rested now. I think, you know, I sleep four times as much as I did then. Um, Like, you know, I think that's a huge part of it. I also think that the benefit of being 24 now is that I'm not in school. So I'm able to not be so rushed, um, you know, in the work that I do. I'm able to give it my full time and attention. Um, And that's just not something that I could do when I was a full time student as well, you know, and I think before I was making a salary, I was like working other jobs. And, you know, as a student, I was doing other activities. And now I think being able to be in like be a young professional is that this is my full focus, like I can just be about the work. And I think that has opened up so much space. You know, I think another part of it is like, my family is in a a lot more of a stable situation. And I think that's allowed for a lot better mental health, a lot more space to be able to focus on myself and focus on my well being and focus on my self care. Uh, And so 
I think that that and just continuing to do the work on my own mental health and awareness has been um, has been really, really integral. Do you have any advice for people who are listening? Because it sounds like you have done a lot of work on this. And we hear from many women that they struggle with self-awareness. So how do I tap into what's going on with me? How do I tell myself, hey, there's an issue here before it gets to a point where it is much more difficult to deal with it? So if you have any tips or advice for women who are struggling with self-awareness. Yeah, I would say that for me, like it, it's something that I probably never thought of early on in my career. I didn't make space for it because I think it really terrified me. But I think right now I really value alone time. Um, and I also really value like my, I do yoga every single day and like not being on my phone and just having to be so centered and present has been massively, you know, impactful on that self-awareness because you know, I am an overthinker and oftentimes the way I cope with that anxiety and like over, you know, overstimulation is that I just distract myself with work and tasks, you know, creating the space to be more self-aware and also to figure out next steps that I need to do to, you know, come to a higher level of understanding. Well, Nadia, thank you for spending this time with us. If people want to watch your incredible story as it unfolds, you still have so much runway and I'm sure so many things ahead of you. What is the best way for them to follow you and learn more about what you're doing? All on social media. I'm just at Nadia Okamoto. Thank you. I appreciate your time today. If you'd like to learn more about our guests this week or how you can join the She Speaks community, check out the links in the show notes. Thanks for listening and looking forward to our next conversation. Thank you for listening. If you're an influencer or a brand that wants to work with us, please feel free to email us at info at shespeaks.com. Until next time.